don't hesitate. Let's jump right in. James chapter 2, we finished up chapter 1 last week, and this morning we're in James chapter 2, and um, we'll just get as far as we can get this morning. I've got a good cutoff point if I need to stop uh, prior to where my notes finish, and I'm okay with that, and I'm sure you'll be fine with that. Uh, so grab your Bibles, let's stand, those of you who are able to stand, and we're going to read just the uh, first few verses together. James chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brethren, so he's talking to the church here, to believers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, And there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention, you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and you say to him, well, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, Father, we ask, Lord, this morning that, um, Lord, you would help us to see where we're at in relation to this as individuals and, Lord, as a local expression of your church, your body. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would um, convict where conviction's needed, encourage where encouragement's needed. And, Lord, we want to be conformed to the image of your Son. That's our desire. And sometimes, Lord, it's painful, Lord, uh, Uh, to have those vestiges of sin rooted out in us. But, Lord, we know that the blessing, Lord, is in the obedience and being conformed to your image. So would you do that work in us, we pray this morning, by your word and by your spirit. And all God's people said, amen. You all can be seated. So keep in mind that James here is continuing to show us, you remember from last week we talked about, he talked about real religion He's continuing to show us what true faith, what real religion looks like. And from last week, you know, he he used that term pure and faultless or undefiled religion. And, And what he means by that is that pure and undefiled religion expresses itself outwardly. It our true faith in Christ expresses itself outwardly. The, you know, the, the, we bear fruit in the likeness of Christ because his, his word has been, we've been brought forth by the word. His word's been implanted in our heart. We've got a new nature, a new heart, new desires, and it automatically begins to manifest itself. Now, that doesn't mean that we grow by leaps and bounds and there's not struggles and there's not difficulties because there is. But if we're Christ, then we slowly but surely start to become a little bit more like him. Our minds begin to think like him. Our desires begin to uh, be moved in that direction. Real, and and, and he, that's, that's what the whole book of James is about. He wants his people to know what real religion, what true faith in Christ looks like. Real religion, a living faith in Christ, first and foremost, what did he tell us? It responds rightly to trials, doesn't it? That's one way we can know that if we're his or not, how we go through trials. It doesn't mean that when we trials come to our life that we're not shaken because we are. It doesn't mean that we're not saddened because we are. But, but though we be shaken, hardships don't destroy 
our faith in God if we're truly His. Rather, those trials, God uses them to conform us to His image. So real religion, true faith, responds rightly to trials. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about real religion is not a hearer of the Word only, is it, church? It's not just a hearer, but it's a doer of the Word. His, His Word permeates our lives. And, and, and because we're His and His Word gets implanted in our hearts, it affects the way that we live. It affects our tongues, right? James said last week we have, we, our tongues have a new master, not controlled by the flesh. We're not slaves to sin. We're not slaves to, our, to the old man, but we're slaves to Christ. And then what matters to the heart of God because we're His begins to matter to us. And God's heart is for the widows and for the orphans, and it's for the people that are marginalized. It's for the helpless and the hurting. And, and so, too, we can't, if we're his people, see those in need and just say, you know, hope you're warm and well-fed, and that's the end of it. But we take time to minister to their needs. And then James said that the world begins to lose its attraction to those who are his people. The world doesn't have the draw that it used to. It doesn't have the excitement. Sin is not as fun as it used to be. Because why? Because now we find that we're satisfied in Christ. And so then James in chapter 2 here, he's expanding our thinking about what matters to the heart of God. Real religion expresses itself by visiting orphans and widows. And it doesn't play favorites. James knew that in his day, in that age, and really in every age, there's a real danger to discriminate. There's a real danger to show partiality, to to, to play favorites, if you will. To treat people differently according to their outward appearance. And we all struggle with that. And so James this morning very lovingly, and he starts out the, the, the chapter here, my brethren, he's endearing, he's pastoral, he's not forceful, he's not mean, he's not finger-pointing, but he's careful about what he says because he cares for the people that he's talking to, and he knows that what he has to say is going to be hard and it's going to step on toes, but nonetheless, he still says it because he loves the people and he loves the Lord. And in the ancient world that he lived in, Discrimination was commonplace. Over 90% of the people were poor. Maybe at best 10% were wealthy, if you want to call them wealthy at that. But there was, there was no middle class. There was this gaping you know, hole between the two extremes, but no middle class. And there was no means in those days for people to, um, how do you put it, maybe climb the social ladder, Right? farmers begat farmers, right? If your mom and dad was a farmer, that's what you were going to be, probably a farmer. If your mom and if your dad was a fisherman, guess what your job was going to be? You were going to be a fisherman. If you were born to, uh, to the uh, um, aristocracy, you know, to the nobles and all that, then it automatically got transferred to you. And so however you were born, whatever state that was, in, that's what you were. There, there were no, you weren't going to move your way up into the middle class or to the upper class. Women were looked down upon. 
Race discrimination was the norm. The Jews didn't intermix with the Samaritans, though they were family, if you will. The Jews and the Gentiles, they hated each other. And so discrimination was commonplace. And in our day and age, you know, discrimination's a big deal, isn't it? And, and maybe we think that we have uh, become a bit more sophisticated than in James' day. But I kind of think that we've just kind of cloaked it a little bit better. You know, in our culture, they've recognized, we'll give them credit for this, they've recognized that discrimination is a bad thing, and they've, laws have been passed to make it illegal to discriminate on the basis of race or color, religion, sex, national origin, pregnancy, you know, that doesn't hinder things anymore, disability, genetic information, in other words, they can't look at your medical history, not supposed to, and, and discriminate against you uh, on age or, or most recently on, on, on sexual orientation. But here's the problem. While you can legislate morality, can't you? We can legislate. We can put in moral laws. You can legislate morality, but you cannot change the heart. You can't make people love those that they don't want to love, right? And so you can have all these laws, but they don't fix the root problem, which is the heart. And, of course, that's where the power of the gospel breaks through, right? It breaks through those divisions. As Paul said in the book of Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. And that, to me, is the beauty of the local church. All different ages, all different origins and races, males and females. I grew up in a church where the men sat on one side and the women sat on the other. Now, maybe there's some benefits to that, but I don't think so. I grew up in a church where there was definitely favoritism shown to those who had wealth and to those who were poor, and they were marginalized. The the poor were and made to feel bad, and they made them feel like they had to dress up just to come in the door. They would even be looked upon, uh, frowned upon even more than what they were. And so James, he's writing to a church that is struggling, obviously, with showing partiality. And I don't think that this was just some hypothetical case that was going on, but this was something that James was aware of and something that he knew was taking place, even by the illustration he gives us in verses 2 and 3. But, but the church is young. It's not been around for very long at that point. He, he knows that the believers he's writing to, they're not very mature yet. And so he wants to give them some instruction to grow them and to stretch them in their newfound faith in Christ. And I don't think this is just for the newfound in Christ, but I think this is for all of us in Christ. We need this instruction. And so James says that true faith in Christ, it doesn't show partiality based on one's outward appearance. And so then he gives us this illustration in verses 2 and 3. And we're going to come back to verse 1 so uh, because it's got a lot of... Uh, a lot of punch and power in it there. But verses 2 and 3, he gives us an illustration here. He says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings. So let's just think about it. This is a, the assembly there. That's The, the word there is, uh, it, it means synagogue. So that means that that day they were still kind of meeting in, in the synagogues. And they were uh, not only meeting in homes, but they were meeting in the synagogues. That's what the assembly means there. So it gives us an idea of the age of the letter of James. And this is a church setting. 
This is a, this is a, a Sunday day of worship, just like we're gathered here today. And Mike's appointed all the different ushers who are at the door. Gary's at the door. Bill's in the parking lot. I don't know if he's listening. He should be. But uh, he, he, we've got all of our different ushers. They've been well-trained. They've been well-equipped, just like they are here at, here at Berean. And, and, and this church is no different. And into their assembly comes a man with gold rings or his Rolex on or his fine suit. He's in fine apparel. And then... Not far behind him, another fellow comes in, a poor man, and he's in filthy clothes, and he probably doesn't smell very well. And he says, this is the problem that's happening in your church. He says, you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes. You focus on him. You give him all the attention that he needs because out with his outward appearance, you're drawn to that because of our sinful nature. And you say to that guy who's all dressed up, you say, oh, won't you come here and sit in the best seat in the house? And in those days, it would have been right here on the swan row in the front, <laughs> or where Glenda's at over here with Ashlyn and Thomas, right? And the rest of you. So that would have been, you know, in our day and age, the best row is the back of the house, right? Nobody likes to sit up front if they don't have to. Everybody kind of clamors for the, for the back and so you say, well, come on here, let's give you the best seat in the house, which would have been up front. Let's bring you up here in the prominent place. And you say to the poor man, the man with the filthy clothes, the man who doesn't smell too well, you know what, I don't even know if we have room for you, but why don't you, why don't you sit back here by the door so that you really don't bother me? Matter of fact, why don't you just sit, at my, just sit down here at my feet? Just sit here. And James says, James says that, that's a picture here. I'm, I'm trying to illustrate to you. And I, I don't know if that was a, you know, just a, a hypothetical illustration or maybe possibly. I know a lot of the theologians believe that this was probably something that was actually had, was taking place in the churches and that James had heard about that. And so he uses this true event to, you know, to confront them and how they were showing partiality when, in the church. So, so what does James mean by showing partiality? Well, let's start off with what he doesn't mean. How about that? And then we'll talk about what he does mean. So James doesn't mean that it's wrong to make appropriate distinctions. He's not reducing everything and, and everyone to a common level. The Bible doesn't do that. So for example, making sure that we give proper consideration and respect to an elderly person. It, we have handicapped parking that's closer to the building because we want to give consideration and respect to their needs, right? It certainly wouldn't be wrong for our ushers to make sure that those who are in wheelchairs are seated on the aisle so they don't have to climb over the seats, right? I mean, that's consideration. That's respect for their age and also the situation that they're in. And at the same time, if we had a healthy 20-year-old come in, the, our ushers would have no problem at all saying, you know what, you can pretty much sit anywhere you can find a hole because you're young and you're healthy, and we don't mind if you climb over because of your age, right? But we show proper consideration and respect to those who are elderly or have walkers or in wheelchairs. That's, it's a manifestation of love. Yes, we're making a distinction between the, between the elderly and between the young, but, but it doesn't come from a bias or, or, or from some, some type of a shallow prejudice. It comes from 
you know, showing respect and, con- and proper consideration. And once more, it's an obedience to Scripture, right? We're told in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. So if all of our seats were full and an elderly person came in, we would expect that everyone younger than, but especially the youngest in the church, would quickly rise up and give them their seat. That would be right. That would be the heart of God. James is also not saying that we shouldn't have good manners. Men, we should fulfill our masculine mandate. We should fulfill the role that God has given to us. And so it is proper. And I realize in our egalitarian society where they want to make everybody the same, right? Everybody the same. And women have, you know, risen up and hear me woman, you know, I am woman, hear me roar and the whole Helen Reddy song and all that. And, and they've done a disjustice to, to women. Because now they're like, don't, don't do that for me. I can do it myself. But you see, us as men, we have a role, a God-given role. We were created in the image of God, and we were created first, not to, not to rule over you, but to bless you and to love you and to care for you. And so it is right for the man to open the door still for the woman, to hold the door when you're coming in and out the church, or to help her bring her stuff in and all of her diaper bags and everything else. When you go into you go into stores, it's right to let the woman go first. You're showing proper honor and respect. You're showing good manners. It's right when you're on a bus or the train or wherever you're at, and, and there's no seats left that you give your seat up for the woman, right? That's good manners. That's our mandate as men. Also, James is not saying that we shouldn't show proper respect to people. If the president were to show up in our worship service, which I'm sure it would never happen, but if he did, would it be appropriate for us to make sure that his entourage had, a, had, had the seating that they needed that fit with his office because him needing maybe some special attention and for the secret service and all that mess? That would be proper for us, and we would go out of our way to accommodate that because even Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's right to honor that role that they have in our lives, that they've been placed there by God, and we should respect that. Now, what it doesn't mean is that because the president's here that he's going to hear some type of a watered-down message and we're not going to say hard things. We're not going to accommodate the Word of God. That would be showing partiality. But we pray, pay proper respect to people all the time, don't we? When, a, when, a, when we have a wedding here, you go to a wedding, and the bride comes through the doors, what do we all do? We stand up, right? Is that showing partiality? No, that's proper respect and consideration. And when the, when the, the bride and groom, after the vows, they, they've made their vows, they've kissed, and they stand and they face and they go out, everybody rises again. That's proper respect. And so James is not here arguing that we lose all proper decorum. Or when our military come home on leave, right? Do you think James would say it was sinful for us? It would be showing partiality for us if we acknowledge them and we thank them for, our, for their service to our country? Would he say, hey, don't do that, guys. That's favoritism. 
You're showing partiality. No, we're recognizing the dignity of their service, uh, of their service and their sacrifice, and the debt that we owe to them. That's proper. That's right. So, well then, well then, what does James mean by showing partiality? He means it's a favoritism that gives benefits and blessings based on shallow externals. And we struggle with this, church. I think all of us would admit to one degree or another that when, we, when you first meet someone, we size them up, don't we? Don't we size them up? Uh, you know, uh, maybe we're looking at the car they drive. What kind, what's the emblem they got? Is this a beater? Or is this a nice ride? You know, we, we size up people based upon shallow externals. You know, we, 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 we look at their, uh, you know, just are, are, they, are they attractive? Are they not attractive, right? We size people up that way. The clothes that they wear, the house they live in. Oh, here's a good one for, for bringing east side, west side, right? I mean, the cool side and the not so cool side, you know, we... Your pastor sizes up people based on that, and 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 uh, and we do that all the time. And and you know, we, we, a person's race, their skin color, right, or their education level, right? We, we we do that. We we size people up based upon all these shallow externals, and it and it affects the way that we think about them, and whether or not we even want to have a relationship with them. I, I see this all the time when I attend pastors' conferences. Uh, you, you see, you see, uh, people get sized up based upon what your role is in the church. You know, are you are you uh, um, an assistant pastor, an associate pastor? Are you a lead pastor? Are you see? And they got so many different titles now. I don't know what they all are, what they mean. You know, you get sized up based on, and then and then you get further sized up on what size your church is, right? And so. See that all the time. It's really discouraging to see, which is why I don't like to go to most conferences because that's just too common. And the problem is that because of those external circumstances, we show partiality. We we show favoritism. Someone who comes into our midst, we're, we're tempted to, and this is a problem for churches. We're tended to, based upon the externals, their education, their, their wealth, uh, you know, their, their business savvy, uh, you know, that can affect uh, our view of them and what, what their status might be in the church. We could put them on a fast track for advancement into, into church leadership because of what they can do for us rather than who they really are in Christ and what they can do for the body. And then oftentimes, because of those shallow externals that we judge by, we can, we, here in the church, we can expect less out of those who have a lot. They come in, they've got money, right? They've got wealth, they've got something to give to the, you know, something that we think that, that, would, be, that would benefit us. And, and, and we require less out of them. If they do something wrong, we're less likely to, to, you know, to confront them. I remember several years ago, this had to be goodness, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 years ago. I remember there was a fellow in our congregation. He was a wealthy business owner in, in the local community here. And 
and he was in an immoral relationship with a lady in our church. And he invited me over to his establishment to have lunch. So that made it even more intimidating. He's a wealthy man. I'm in his, you know, I'm on his turf, so to speak. And, and, uh, and, you know, and I'm what, maybe 35 at the time and young guy and he's in his fifties and, and, um, he's a wealthy guy. And, and, and I'd be lying to you to tell you that, that it was no problem at all for me to say, talk to him about his sin. But I remember just wrestling with that going into it because thinking this guy, I'm sure he gives a lot to the church. And, and it was hard, and I wrestled with that. But at the end of the day, the Lord helped me, you know, to, to, to care for him because of his need for Christ. The man wasn't a believer, and, and we sat there over the dinner table, and we talked, and I discussed with him his need for Christ. But, but it was hard because of, of this issue that James is dealing with here, because we show partiality. And oftentimes, we want to please the man and not please the Lord. And so this was a problem in the early church, this, this type of partiality and favoritism. Uh, there you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where you know, Paul is talking about the love feast and he's talking about the Lord's table and the communion service and he's, and he's exhorting them, he's admonishing them about what was taking place there. He said, you know, you're giving preference to some and they're at the head of the line and they're getting to eat and everything and you've got other people that you're not showing any, you have no regard for and they're going home hungry. He said, this is wrong. The early church struggled. Peter, you remember Peter, Peter really struggled with this with this issue, didn't he? With partiality. You remember that he um even even when he had that that little vision there, that dream that the Lord gave him, you know, and of the of the net coming down and and with all these different uh, unclean animals in it, and and he tells Peter, he says, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." And it was a whole vision to talk to him about how you need to go over and talk to this this uh, this Gentile over in Caesarea, and to share the gospel. Well, Peter didn't want anything to do with that, right? Because it's a Gentile. We don't mess with Gentiles. They're, they're, you know, they're dogs. They're scum. And, and Peter continued to struggle with that. Even, even, you know, as, as he, you know, as a, as he got older, he continued to struggle. You remember he was in Antioch, and I think it's in Galatians chapter two. And there he is, and he's hanging out with these Gentiles in the church that are believers, and he's eating unclean food with them, not kosher food. He's got no problem with it. So he's, you think he's over this thing. Okay, Lord, I got it. I learned my lesson. So I don't have a problem sitting down eating with Gentiles. And, and I can have a ham sandwich every now and then. It's okay. I can do that. And, and then you remember that some of, some of the guys from, from James, James sent some guys there to Antioch uh, to the church. And when Peter saw them, you remember, they're Jews. They're like Peter. And when James saw them, he's, he runs away from the Gentiles. He's like, I don't, even, well, I don't hang out with Gentiles. I don't eat ham. No, no, I'm a totally kosher guy. And you remember Paul had to rebuke him to his face because he was showing partiality. He was showing favoritism. And not only this is a problem in the church, but in the you know, church in days past, but it's, it's, been a, it's been a problem throughout the church age. I'm sure that some of you have heard about that years and years ago, especially in the, um, in the Reformation days and in the days after that, the Puritans, that um, you, could, you could rent your seats in church. Yeah, the wealthy people would rent their, their seats. 
And they were always the ones up front, and they would rent them. How many of you ever seen that old movie from 1960s, Pollyanna? You remember that? I know you have, because we saw it about four million times at home. That's probably why I remember it. But, but that, it's, what is it? Uh, uh, Haley, Haley Mills and uh, Jane Wyman and uh, Carl Malden from the streets of San Francisco guy. You remember him, the large nose? I can say that because I've got one too. But it was this you know, church that was you know, probably set back in the 50, 40s and 50s and 60s. And, and uh, it was basically owned by a wealthy family in the church, Jane Wyman being the, you know, the, the matriarch of the family. And uh, basically, they, you know, because of their support in the church, their, their support of the church, they expected the preacher to preach messages that they liked. And when he didn't preach messages, they, they knew about it, and, you know, the preacher knew about it, and he, you know, was threatened to, they, they threatened to, to pull their support from the church. But, but that was typical in that day and age where people would come in and they would rent pews. They would, they would, even, they would even have uh, plaques that they would put on. If they paid enough money, you could put your, your name on there. This wasn't, you know, an honor, you know, this wasn't in honor of so-and-so who's passed away and they left some money to the church. But this was people who actually rented or bought a pew and they would get their names put on the plaque and they would screw them to the pew. And you didn't sit in those chairs. No, you didn't, not unless you wanted to get thrown out on your ear. And so that was common. Even up in, even in, in New England, in our, in, in our country, that's been common up until like the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, where you would, you know, I think they called it pay-per-pew. Not pay-per-view, but pay-per-pew. <laughs> but people paid to reserve the best seats there in the front of the church. And if we're honest, church, listen, we still have to admit that we've got a problem with that. Not that we put best people in, you know, the, the, the richest or the wealthiest or the ones that can do the most for us in the front or that we put them there. But you think about it, most churches today, when they plant churches, I remember when we planted this on, on, the, uh, on the east side over here. Listen, there are not a lot of churches clamoring to plant churches in East Palmdale. Or for that matter, even East Lancaster. Where do people want to plant most churches? The West Side. Because typically, this is not always, but typically it's the more affluent, right? People have more money. And that's the same in countries, in, in, in other countries where they're planting churches. They, they want to try to plant it with affluent people so that they can get the support that they need. And we have that problem. We have that problem not just in church planning, but churches are divided over race. We have congregations that are completely white, congregations that are completely black, you know, congregations that are divided by nationality. Uh, we, we see it in all types of things. How about, how about when somebody famous in the congregation, somebody gets saved, right? And they're famous, you know. I remember this years ago. There was a, there was a, a rock group, and they may still be around or not. I don't know. A rock group, Foreigner. One of the guys from Foreigner got saved. And I remember it was within a few months of that guy getting saved, he was up giving his testimony and playing songs at the Harvest Crusade down in Anaheim. I thought, really? Would we do that for, you know, if, if Jason Bruman just got saved? <laughs> Would we put them up there on a stage like that? I mean, we should, right? But no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't do that. And the guy from Foreigner shouldn't be up there and... I remember reading a story here recently about, this was before megachurches were a common, common thing, but probably one of the first megachurches in the United States was in the Dallas area in the 1970s. 
And they were coming up on their 10,000th member. That's a lot of people. 10,000. And they were advertising, you know, in the papers, on the radio. Uh, this is before internet, so it wasn't on the internet. But they were, they were just mass media advertising to come to their service to see them present the, 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 their 10,000th member. Now, who do you think that member was? You think that was a little old widow or a little old podunk, you know, like you or me? It was, it was the kicker for the Dallas Cowboys. He was the 10,000th member. I mean, that's how we do it in churches, right? I mean, we show this partiality. We show this favoritism. And, and we have to be honest about it, don't we? We're prone to do that. Someone shows up in our parking lot, and they're living in their car, and there is a tendency, there is a temptation. And we've had this happen before. But there's a temptation on all of our parts, like, oh, that guy's living in his car. You know, let's kind of just steer clear of him. Or, or someone shows up, and they're all tatted out, right? They got tattoos up here. You think, oh, we know what they, you know, they got tattoos, they got sleeves of them, right, and all that. And we're thinking what? Man, gangbangers, and they're bad, and let's stay away from them. And we don't, give, we don't have any consideration whatsoever about the guy living in the car, the tatted-up guy, and their need for Christ. Because we're looking at the externals. And it affects the way that we interact with them. And we're tempted to make distinctions based upon certain philosophies that we hold dear, like education, right? Homeschool community, private school community, public school community, and we all can make these distinctions. Oh, you go to public school. I don't want my kids playing with yours, okay? We know what kind of things they learn in public school, right? Or political affiliation. Oh, you feel the burn, do you? Socialist Democrat. Okay, I really don't want anything to do with you because I love Trump. Oh, don't tell me that, please. <laughs> then we got a whole nother issue, right? And, and then we segregate that guy and we take him, we do church discipline immediately, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> and J- James says, listen, James doesn't just say, stop it. He doesn't say, don't show partiality. He doesn't just stop with that. But he tells us why. He reasons with us biblically why the church, why believers, why real religion, why true faith doesn't show partiality. He says, my brethren, verse 1, go back to it if you would. Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. This is the biblical reasoning behind why we don't show partiality. And that word there, partiality, depending on what translation you have, the, old, the new King James is partiality. I like the old King James that says, no respecter of persons. I like that. Uh, other, others say uh, uh, personal favor, you know, don't, don't show personal favoritism. But literally, what James is saying in, in the Greek, that word there, partiality or no respecter, it means don't receive the face. That's what it means. It means don't judge a person based on the, out, the external, the outwards. And James is saying that, that favoritism is inconsistent with the gospel. Let me ask you this. Does God receive the face? Does he judge us based upon shallow externals? 
Does he save us based upon our, the externals? Uh, he looks at our wealth and says, well, that guy, you know what? He could do something for the kingdom. I think I'm going to save him. Or our appearance, or our skin color, or our nationality, or our education, or, or, or does he look at our works and say, well, I'm going to save this person based on, on these externals? These things are completely unimportant to God. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't receive the face, if you will. You remember with Israel? Israel's a good picture of that. I mean, God goes to great length over and over in the Old Testament to remind them and to remind us that why did God choose Israel? Of all the nations, was it because they were better? Was it because anything extra? He says, no, you were the weakest. You were the, really the worst. Of the lot, you were the bottom of the barrel. He didn't choose them, choose them based upon anything in them, but based upon you know reasons within himself that why he chose them. Those things are unimportant to God. He doesn't care about how much money we have or don't have. He doesn't care about our education. He doesn't care about uh, what letters you have behind your name. He doesn't care about where you went to school. He doesn't care about skin color. He doesn't care about nationality. He doesn't care about your social standing within the community. God treats people with absolute equality based upon, simply based upon the internal condition of our soul. You see, the cross is the great equalizer, right? At the cross of Jesus Christ, we're all made equal. We're all sinners. I don't care whether you've got a lot, you've got a little. You've got a lot of education, you've got a little education. It doesn't matter. Here's what matters to God is that we're sinners. And he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the externals don't factor into it on the basis of salvation. Paul says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that tells me? That tells me that his love for us, that he demonstrated at the cross of Christ, sin in Christ has nothing to do with my station in life, social status, education. It has nothing whatsoever to do with all these externals. And so that means that he doesn't love me. He doesn't love me more when I'm doing good, and he doesn't love me less when I'm failing left and right, does he? Because his love for us is not based upon any of that stuff. And so James says favoritism is inconsistent with, uh, with faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, James says that we shouldn't show partiality because of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he call him? The Lord of glory. James is saying that favoritism substitutes human glory for divine glory. He says that's the problem. There's only one who that we should be giving glory to. Not the person with the gold rings, not the person with the Rolex, not the person with the nice cars, not the one who can do something for me, but the one who did everything for me, the most important thing for me. He came to forgive me of my sins and reconcile me to the Father. That's the one who deserves the glory. John put it this way in John 1.14. He said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, speaking of Christ, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
beheld his glory. He's the one that has the glory. Hebrews puts it this way, that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus has the same glory and he was the glory that always was, was there in the Old Testament, the, the, the Shekinah glory, right? The Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle and that filled the temple, right? That was the glory of God. The glory that led them through the wilderness, that was the glory of God. Christ is glorious. That's what James is saying. And those who know the glory of Christ will be unimpressed by human glory. That's the point that James is making. The glory of the world and the glory of people is nothing in comparison to Christ. It is unimpressive if we truly are beholding the face of glory. Well, we're going to stop there because I told you I had a good stopping place. But James is going to continue next week to tell us, reason with us why we shouldn't show partiality. And we'll get probably up to verse 7 as we do that.